If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We're going to finish up chapter 2 today. We have hit the midway point of our series on the seven churches to whom God wrote through the Apostle John, Jesus speaking to the churches. We know from the end of each of these where he says to those that have hears, let them hear what he writes to the churches, that these seven letters, yes, they were written to a specific place in time, a specific church at a specific moment with specific realities. But it's also letters to speak to and for us to understand are given to the entirety of the big C church and individual churches like our own. And so as we read each of these letters, while we may not be the church in Pergamum or Smyrna or today Thyatira, what we can say and know is that the message that was given to them is just as applicable to us today as it was to them in the first century. And so as we read this, we read this not just as the letter to Thyatira, we read this as the letter to First Baptist Goodlettsville. We look for characteristics of our church within it and how we should respond in the midst of it. One of the things that we're going to talk about today, we talked a little bit about cultural compromise last week, and we said that what happens in the middle three of these letters, that the first letter and the last letter correspond to one another. They're very similar. The second letter and the sixth letter correspond are very similar. And then you have three, four, and five right in the middle, and it's a progression from dabbling in compromising with culture, full-on compromise with culture we'll talk about today, and dead church next week. And it is a progression that happens from thinking about walking away from the traditional not only beliefs of the Christian life, but the practices of the Christian life, to giving into that while still trying to hold on to some idea of Christianity, to just letting it go and becoming a dead church. And today, on a particular issue, Jesus is going to enter into the discussion and give a definitive word on the subject. We live in a culture, in our society, our American society, we live in a culture that embraces debate. Questions online about this or that. Do you like this or that? What do you think of this or that? How do you think about this or that? From sports stories, our sports television has turned not into highlights of the game that happened, but about debates about what will happen or what did happen. Politics is kind of that way, right? A little bit. Maybe a small amount. One side being presented, another side on another station. They used to have these things crossfire and all these kind of debates, but now it's just we give our one side and it's all about debate and it's all about issues and it's endless and endless and endless discussion, debate, and one side and the other. But at some point in the discussion, if someone is an expert in the field, they have the right to speak. So if you and I were on the golf course and you were evaluating my swing, which is less than excellent, did I get a, hear an amen on that? Not many of you all have played golf with me, but it's true. And Tiger Woods were to walk on the course and say, can I give you a few tips? I wouldn't listen to you again. 
right? If we're out on the grill and we're discussing the best seasoning or temperature or way to do something and someone like Bobby Flay walked out and said, this is what I would do, we would allow him to speak. When it comes to the issue that is being discussed in the church of Thyatira, Jesus weighs in. And here's what I will tell you. Anytime Jesus weighs in, it's time to stop and listen. He gives us a route about a church and gives a solution to them to a problem that they may know about or may not even realize is as bad as it is. But Jesus is going to remind them of the way out. By the way, just a little note here. Thyatira, according to all the scholars, I read this in almost every commentary I looked at this week, and I looked at many, that almost every one of them mentioned that it is the least significant place or church that is mentioned in the seven. Like usually, and I don't give you all of this detail, but when I'm studying this, it gives all the the temples and the, the trade and marketplace and gives a full description of the ancient city and it always has these prestigious things and every week I'm like, I thought that was last week's. They're bigger and better and bigger than before and this week's everything said it's not really important at all. Now here's what's interesting. And this will be an easy one because of what we're doing here, but can you guess which church got the longest letter of the seven? the least significant church, got the most attention from Jesus. In other words, there's no least important church or believer. The first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture is that Jesus is the pure and powerful King. He is the pure and powerful King. Look at what it says, starting in verse 18. It says this, Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, Thus says the Son of God, the ones whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fire and bronze. In this particular description, he gives just a quick description of who he is. Almost always they refer back to chapter 1, to that description that came of Jesus, and he's just picking up stuff for them particularly. One of the things that's interesting about this particular passage and this particular description is that if Thyatira was known for anything, even though it was not of the most important places, if it was known for anything, it was known for its quality of bronze. Jesus uses the description of bronze here to signify something greater. The first thing that he says is that he is the Son of God. Now, part of that is a reference to the Old Testament where it was described that one of David's descendants would come and he would be the ruler of all time and would rule for all eternity and that they would call him the Son of God. It is this understanding that he is the one who will rule. It's also a... um, description for the people that are here and a reminder that Jesus is more powerful than Caesar because Caesar was often described as a son of God or one of the sons of God. And what it says about Jesus here is not that he is a son of God or one of the sons of God, that he is the son of God, the one and only ruler. Then he gives two depictions of what he does. It says that he has eyes that are fiery and that are looking like a fiery flame. And that he has feet that are like fine bronze. 
The descriptions there tell us two things about Jesus. First of all is that he is constantly probing and searching and that he sees to the very essence of who we are. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that escapes the gaze of our Savior. I think about to David when he was selected to be king of Israel. And they brought all the tall guys and the strong guys. And at that time Saul was king. And so they picked him because he looked the part. And when Samuel anoints David, one of the things he says is, man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. The understanding there is that God knows every aspect of who we are. Now, that's both good and bad. There are times in our lives, anybody ever experienced this, when you have been misunderstood and you had really good motives and it just didn't turn out like you thought and people assume that your motives weren't good. Anybody ever had that happen? Like you tried to do something, it didn't turn out right, or you accidentally said the wrong thing, or you weren't intending to offend and you offended, and the motives of your heart, but people just saw what the outside is. In those moments, God knows our hearts. Sometimes when I'm talking to people and they're asking about life decisions and going this way or that way and what is the Lord leading in this moment and what is God's will and plan for my life specifically at this time, one of the things often referenced to them is, listen, if you have sought the Lord with everything you have, you've put the decision before Him, you've repented of anything that's been in your life that might hinder that decision, and you feel that God is leading you down one direction, and you accidentally, even though your motives are good or not in line, you go the wrong direction in some way, God's not going to look and go, well, that's it. Look what they did. God understands the eternal motivations of our heart. He sees and knows everything. And he's going to understand that we were giving everything we could to him. That's the good. There's also the reality that he knows everything. And so even those times when you've been praised externally because of something you did, but your motive wasn't really good, or you don't deserve the praise that is there, God understands that as well. That has been modeled throughout these churches, right? Because he'll say, this I have for you, this I have against you, this I have and know and have heard about your deeds, this is what I have against you. And so we know from the very beginning, he says, I am going to know everything that's going on. I see all and know all. But then it says his feet are like fine bronze. What does that mean? Well, it, two things. First of all, it is a purity there. Fine bronze in purity. So he is absolutely pure, absolutely holy. But it also determined or gives us this picture of determined strength. That he is established and firm. Those boots would have been heavy and he is standing firm in who he is. Jesus is pictured as pure and uncompromising. Second thing we see in this passage, and this is where 
we're going to see some good things, but it's mostly is going to be a correction of them. The second thing we see in this passage is there is no excuse for tolerating sin. There is no excuse for tolerating sin. Verse 19 starts out positively. I know your works, your love, your faithfulness, your service and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. This is an interesting, I know your works. There is commendation here. There is, I know these things, they're good things. But there's no further description than just the basic, I know your love, your faithfulness, your service and endurance. Like he's saying, I know that you still have those acts, that you're still loving, that you're still faithful, that you still serve and that you endure. I understand that. In fact, it's a amalgamation of what has already been described of the other three churches here and he's kind of putting it together and says and that you've gotten better in those things than you were at the beginning and so um, unlike the church at Ephesus that had lost their love you're there just like the church at Smyrna you're faithful you've been enduring and like Pergamum you're doing good works and it's almost like he gets that out of the way he says that and says listen I know there's some good things happening but verse 20 says I have this against you You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Two things strike me when I read that particular verse. And they're not even the things that are highlighted. We'll talk about those things at the end because that's the application of what happens. It happens at the very beginning are the words tolerate and Jezebel. First of all, let's talk about tolerate. That's a popular word in our society, isn't it? In fact, there are cultural norms that happen within societies that people don't even question sometimes. And if you were to talk about the cultural norms of our American society, one of the things that would be unquestioned in a large majority of all places is that everybody ought to be tolerant. And to that I say... Depends on what you mean. If you read this passage, what is the church specifically called out for being? It's okay to say it out loud. They're called out for being tolerant. They're called out for tolerating something that they should not. So what does tolerating mean? Well, in our society... There are multiple kind of variations of that. If you mean that as a believer, I recognize there are people that will think differently than me and act differently than me. I understand that I can live among them and love them as my neighbors. And I can do all that I can to try to show the compassion and love of Jesus Christ in their lives. If you mean that I have to agree with them at every step of the way, that's not tolerance. Or at least it's not the tolerance that God calls us to here. He says, I have this against you, that you tolerate Jezebel. Now what do you think about when you hear Jezebel? Some of you are like, nothing. I don't think of anything. Not a lot of kids named Jezebel these days. Hadn't done a lot of parent-child dedications of little Jezebel. and had that, right? Jezebel's a name that's kind of not great with reputation. 
And that all goes back to the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, there was a woman named Jezebel. Just a reminder of who she was, she was queen, the wife of Ahab, who himself was not what you would call a stellar, godly king. She was a foreigner that Ahab had married, and she imported her religion into Israel. Her father, by the way, was a priest, a pastor, if you will, a leader of this religious cult. And she, in some ways, acts as a priestess for that. She became active when she married Ahab in trying to get rid of the doctrines of Israel and saying that they were too stringent and too one-sided and that they weren't open and tolerant enough. She persuaded the king to build a temple and an altar to a foreign god in his capital of Samaria. She supported 850 of her cult prophets and killed off all the prophets of Jehovah whom she could find and lay her hands on. If you want to know the story of Jezebel, Ahab and Jezebel are the ones behind the great showdown on the top of the mountain between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Now, she's been dead when we get to Revelation for a thousand years. So this cannot be her. And I don't think, because of the connotation the name had, there was actually a woman named Jezebel in the church. I think what they're saying is the spirit of Jezebel that led the people of God away from worshiping the one true God is alive and well in your place today. And she does the same sort of things that the Old Testament queen did. She teaches and deceives. The word deceives there in the original language has been watered down a little bit. In this translation, the word is actually seduces. She teaches and seduces my servants to sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now here's what was going on in Thyatira about all that we can put together. In Thyatira, one of the most popular things were these things called guilds. And the way that work worked in those days, that is if your dad was a blacksmith and you were the oldest child, oldest son, then when your dad died, the blacksmith job went to you. You trained. That's just what you did. Your family was a blacksmith family. It wasn't like you got to go to college and decide, I don't want to be a blacksmith family. I want to go do a broker. Like, you didn't get to do that. You just kind of followed along. They also didn't have social services. They didn't have kind of health insurance. They didn't have any kind of way to to buy in government support in any of that kind of way. And so what would happen is all the blacksmiths in town would get together and they would form what they called a guild. And as they formed a guild, they would take care of each other within the guild. And so as they took care of each other within the guild, if somebody got sick or they couldn't take care of themselves, then somebody else supported and said, hey, we're going to pitch in and we're going to help. We're going to make sure this family gets back up on their feet. If a father died too early and the son wasn't ready to take the blacksmith, another one of the guild would take the son under his wing and say, I'm going to train you into being what you need to be so that you can take the business over and you have to remember that life expectancy at this time in israel was probably somewhere around or in asia where this church was somewhere around 45 to 50 years old for men that's hard to imagine as a 45 year old 
Just think about that. And so a lot of guys died early and their sons had to be trained and the guild did that. Now, here's the problem from a Christian perspective that happened with the guild. The guild would have a patron God who was their God that controlled them and they would pray to and worship that God and they would sacrifice meals or food to that God and then following the sacrifice they would have a huge meal with the food that had been sacrificed and then following that and I'm trying to think of a delicate way to say what is gonna I'm gonna say here there were after parties where everything was open and to be a part of any business in Thyatira you had to be part of a guild And so what we think is happening here, almost assuredly, is that Jezebel was a lady that was teaching, it's okay to be part of the guild because the idols don't mean anything anyways. And so when you're eating a meal sacrificed to an idol, there's no big deal because there's no such thing as the idol. You're not eating anything bad. But the church was allowing its people, or allowing Jezebel to teach the people, whoever this Jezebel is, that they could fully engage in all the things of the culture in which they live and still be okay with their walk with the Lord. In a modern context, there's no limitations on what you can watch or listen to or be a part of. The sexuality movement of the last 30 years that says that anything, anytime, anywhere, as long as it's what you want to do, is exactly the kind of thing that would have been embraced by the guilds. And Jesus says, I am the all-seeing eye, I know all things, and you think you're getting away with it, or you think it's not a big deal, it is. And I have this against you, is that you tolerate allowing the culture to define your morality instead of what I have taught you is acceptable. There's no excuse for tolerating that in your church. And then he says, and it's a pretty serious thing, Because he says that basically, repentance is the only answer. Now I'm going to read this next section, and we're going to kind of we're going to go to the end of it because I wanted to get repentance out there before we go back to what happens if you don't repent. Verse 21 says, I gave her time to repent. That's Jezebel, but she did not want to repent of her sexual morality. Look, I will throw her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction unless they repent of her works. He says the only solution to any of this is repentance. And that word simply means, we talk about it a lot, almost every sermon that I preach, if I'm biblically accurate and trying to preach the gospel to you, almost every sermon is going to have somewhere in the middle of it a call to repent, which means to change your mind and to change your direction and to start following what the Lord intends. 
And for those of us in this room who may look at our lives and think we've been culturally compromised because we've allowed the things of this world to dictate how we live, not just morally, although that's a big deal. We, we've allowed the culture to dictate to us what is acceptable morally, but also in how we set our lives, how we schedule our lives, how we go after the desires of our heart, what the things are that we want. When we let the world dictate to us what we are or should be doing or going towards or scheduling or going after instead of the Word of God and what God has called us to do, then we have fallen into the trap that is the same trap that the church at Thyatira did. And the only answer to that is to repent. A very churchy word. But it means to say, I was wrong And I don't want to do it again. And God, I need your help to turn my life around. And Jesus tells them here that refusal to repent brings judgment. It says in verse 21, we just read it, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent. Now here's what often happens in our lives when it comes to sin, is that we get entangled in some sort of sin, and then we try to rationalize that it's not as bad as we know it already is. And he says, she doesn't want to give it up. Can I just ask you real, I mean, honestly and openly in this place today, is there an area of your life that you know is sinful, that you know is wrong, but at this moment you're like, I don't want to give it up? I say that because my guess is for a large majority of us in this room, that's the case. He says she didn't want to. And so he says, I gave her time to repent. She doesn't want to repent. I will throw her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction unless they repent. I will strike her children dead. Now we'll talk about that in a minute, all right? Then all of the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts and I will give to each of you according to your works. He says, listen, the reality is I know, I see, I know all. And I have given her opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent. Now we don't know from this passage of scripture, although it's kind of assumed that she's not a true follower of Christ, but if she is, he says, I'm going to bring judgment on her life. And Jesus always brings judgment on the life of a believer to bring us back to Him. On the life of an unbeliever, judgment is a reminder that they are in need of Him. But when He says that she's going to go to the sick bed, He's making a play on what she's been doing. She's been using the bed as something to sin. I'm going to put her in a place where she can't. And those that follow, those that are trying to be a part of this with her. This is not actually people that are with her in this way, but that are people that are engaged in this, or talking about this, or teaching this, that they will have calamity too. And then when it says, I will strike her children dead, it means those that follow along with her and follow down this path will come to the end of it and discover that they weren't following Christ at all. And he says, I'll give according to your works. And so Jesus, the pure and powerful king, says, you've been tolerating this. Stop it. Stop tolerating it. Jesus called, I guess I could say this, and somebody would clip this, and this would all that would be get on social media. Jesus calls the church to be intolerant. 
But that's what he does here with this particular person. Jezebel, because she's leading down a path that's going to lead people into thinking that that's what following Christ is, and it's not. And he's going to bring judgment in order to bring people back to him. And then he ends with, but to those who are faithful, you'll be rewarded. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan. It's interesting because there are some people that think that they were being told that Jezebel had these secrets from God. There was actually a group of people who called themselves um, the special knowing ones, the one that had special knowledge of God. And Jesus says, it's not special knowledge of God. This is special knowledge from Satan. He said, I'm not going to put any other burden to you. You just keep holding firm to what you have. Those of you that haven't given in to this, hold firm. Don't be tempted. Don't be pulled away. And he says, if that happens, the one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, those of you that keep faithful, those of you that keep going, those that are doing what I've called you to do and you stay faithful to the cause, I will give authority over the nations. And he quotes here an Old Testament. He will rule them with an iron scepter. That is a strong scepter. And he will shatter them like pottery. That you will be a part of the ruling that Jesus will do with his people. And just as I receive this from my Father, that you will be co-heirs with me. And then there's this last little part that's interesting because it gives us the essence of what he's saying. And it says, I will also give him the morning star. Anybody know what the morning star is? Let's go to Revelation chapter 22. You can turn over there. You've got your Bibles open, your apps open. Jesus here begins to describe himself and he says that these are the words of the faithful and true. The Lord, the God, the spirits of the prophets have sent an angel to show his servants, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who reads this. He gives this description of himself as what will come to be understood as the bright and morning star. One of the descriptions of Jesus is that he is that bright and morning star. And so when he says at the end, to those that overcome, I will give him the morning star means that you will have an intimacy with Jesus that is unrivaled with anything else in your life. He says, let anyone who has ears listen to what the Spirit says says to the churches. So what's the message to this church? Don't tolerate the evil that has come into your midst. Don't allow the world to dictate the morality by which you live. Jesus reminds them he is pure, that he is holy, that he sees all and knows all, and that he understands what they're happening. And if they will repent and remain faithful that they will experience a life that they cannot imagine following Him. My question for you today is simply this. 
What areas of your life have you allowed the culture to dictate your morality more than you have the Word of God? And are you willing to repent in those areas? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray in this moment that you would have your way and your will completely. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to-